the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show. It's a brand new week. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your questions, questions about the Bible, uh, church questions, questions about something going on in your life. All you have to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. Or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And, of course, if you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Hit the Call Now banner at the top of the screen. Everything else is hands-free. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Hope you had a great weekend at church this weekend. We did. Lots and lots of people here yesterday, and that's always exciting. And, um, you know, it's always a mixed thing, people getting saved, and we had great response uh, to the messages yesterday. And uh, it's just thrilling to see the Holy Spirit at work and um, to see people so hungry. I, I just people hungry for the word. It's really, really a blessing. Speaking of hungry for the word, tonight our men's, women's, and youth Bible studies are um, going to be going on at 7 o'clock here at the church. Uh, Paula will be teaching the ladies, and then, of course, Pastor Ken, the men, and our youth pastors, Chris and Matthew, will be teaching the junior high and high school kids. You can make it a family affair, and everybody come at the same time. That's 7 o'clock tonight. Well, it's a busy time for us. We appreciate your prayer as we close out our final two weeks of school. Um, lots going on, so you might keep this old person in prayer as well. Uh, there's a lot of stuff going on. Let's go to the phone calls, and we will uh, get to the questions sent in a moment or two down the road. Alan from San Antonio on line one. Alan, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hello, Pastor Ron. How are you? Good, Alan. How are you doing? Good to hear from you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Hope you had a good weekend. We really did. It was exciting to be around here this weekend. Prayer, Pastor Ron. I, I just saw the cardiologist uh, uh, on last last week, and uh, he told me I have a, a 100% blockage in an artery and that I'll need oh a stent uh, in placement for that. And uh, this would be the third heart procedure I would be having. Wow, Alan, thank you for letting me know. I will be praying, and obviously that's not something to mess around with when you get into the 99-plus percent blockage. Um, so uh, let me let me know. Do you, do you know when the surgery is going to be? I was trying to schedule it, and um, what happened was the last time I had, a, I had the open-heart surgery was the first procedure, and the second procedure was a stent and placement, and... Uh, I was uh, really sick for about a year after after that. Uh, 
And so now uh, I was trying to avoid any other interventions, but they, they told me uh, it was last Wednesday I had the appointment, and the cardiologist told me I needed another stent. I should, shouldn't wait. And so to answer your question, yeah. I, I, I told him I would, uh, I would let him know, and so I'm trying to arrange, arrange that. Uh, for the okay, third. Ellen, I'm I'm gonna be I'm gonna be praying for you, but please, please follow through and get this done. You know, whenever situations like this, we, we, with when we're talking with Christians, you know, I feel like like the Apostle Paul sometimes when he says, "I don't know what's better to die and or to depart and be with Christ is better by far, but remaining here means meaningful service." And the one thing we want to remember, Alan, is that we want to be here as long as God has a plan for us. And I'm pretty sure he's not done with you yet. So um, be diligent, please, and follow up on this, okay? Thank you, Pastor Ron, and God bless you, and I appreciate all your prayers. And say hi to Pastor Ken and and, uh, everyone there for me. I'll do it, Alan. Thank you very, very much. Keep Alan in your prayers. We've had several people who uh, have had heart attacks or blockages recently, and um, it's nothing to mess with, that's for sure. Alan, we're praying for you. Let's go to a question that was sent in by Scott from our email inbox. He says, in Mark 9, 2, is there significance to the specific mention of after six days? I like to think that Jesus transfigured on the seventh day the number of completion. You know, Scott, uh, one of the things we have to remember about Jesus' timeline going into Jerusalem uh, is that there was a very, very tight schedule. It had nothing whatsoever to do with any of the festivals or the feasts or any symbolism. Um, uh, like the seventh day, you know, if I was thinking, I'd like to think, oh, he'd go on the first day because that's a new start for the world. Uh, or I'm sorry, you know the the eighth day, which is the 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 first day of a new week, and and it, it doesn't have anything to do with that. The only significance was it was six days later, and it's very very clear. Matthew and Mark both say six days later, and the six days refer specifically uh, to that conversation that is uh, being uh, recorded for us in Mark chapter eight, where Jesus says. Um, to be my disciple, uh, you got to deny yourself. You got to pick up your cross daily, Luke adds, and then you got to follow me. And when he gets done with that statement, um, then you count off six days, and that was when the transfiguration was. So whenever we see a very specific mention of a day, um, uh, or or a specific number, I always think of the hundred and fifty three fish that were caught. Um, it's, I've had people call the show and say, well, why why 153? What's the significance? And my answer is because there wasn't 152 or 154. So it, they're just reporting the details and giving us, letting us follow Jesus on that timeline to death. You know, Scott, Jesus is repeatedly telling people, don't tell anybody what I've done for you, um, because he knew that they were going to try to make him the king by force. And it wasn't his time. He would say, my hour hasn't yet come. And he had a very specific hour. And when he comes into Jerusalem on the day that we call Triumphal Entry Sunday or Palm Sunday, that was 173,880 days after the issuing of the decree to rebuild and restore Jerusalem. And we know that date from um, Nehemiah chapter 2. And um, um, so it had to be that day. That was the day he declared himself publicly as the Jewish Christ, the Messiah. And so that timeline has nothing to do with numerology. It has nothing to do whatsoever with any symbolism at all. Good questions, Scott. Thank you very, very much. Uh, I taught that yesterday. One other little note of information. Uh, Luke's Gospel says that it was about eight days later. Now, it's not a contradiction, because had Luke said it was eight days later, then that would be a contradiction. But he said it was about. And I think what Luke is trying to do, and Luke was was not there like Matthew was or or Peter was, and remember Mark's gospel is Peter's account. Uh, I think... um, um, Luke, who was an eyewitness, was getting his information 
uh, from from investigative reporting. He was he was writing a treatise of all that Jesus began to do and say, and he would have included. Uh, Luke would have the day of Peter's confession, the day of that conversation I was talking about, where who do you say that I am? And then he also would have included the day of the transfiguration itself. So you get the six plus those two. And so he says about eight days. Good question. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is... A question from uh, Nacho, our mobile from our mobile app. Uh, he says, "Yesterday in your sermon, you made mention of the bad chapter division in Mark chapter nine. What would you think caused the transcribers of the book to make such a blatant and odd chapter division?" Remember, Nacho, that the transcribers had nothing to do with the chapter and verse divisions. That happened in the 16th century. Uh, it was actually done. Uh, by a man named Stephen Langston, uh, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury. And um, it was just simply a tool to make things easier to find in our Bibles. Uh, but but the chapter and verse divisions are not inspired. inspired. And uh, the, the chapter division between Mark 8 and Mark 9 is one of the very, very worst ones because they take the last thing Jesus said to his disciples six days earlier and they put in a completely new chapter. There's probably about a dozen or so really, really bad chapter divisions in our Bibles. And unfortunately, the way we read our Bibles, Nacho, um, you know, we have a tendency to go one chapter at a time, and our, our, our thinking is rather linear, and so we kind of stop with the thought process. And so, so it just that's just men make errors, and God doesn't. Uh, but uh, but I think that's one of the reasons we have Bible teachers, just to make sure that we're um, we're explaining exactly why this is what it is. So it wasn't the transcribers at all; it was just the people that went in uh, in the the 16th century and decided, well, we're going to break this chapter here, break this chapter here, and they would go the verses. So uh, that, there is a couple of chapter divisions where or verse, chapter and verse divisions, where the, the, the verse, one verse, one sentence is cut in half. And, and it's just, I think it's just, they were doing the best that they could. Not inspired by the Holy Spirit at all. Good question, Nacho. Appreciate it very, very much. Here is a question um, from Anonymous from our email inbox. Pastor Ron, why do ooh, I like this this question, Anonymous? Pastor Ron, why do churches have youth groups? I heard a pastor speak about how youth ministry is robbing parents of the opportunity and responsibility to train up their child. He said that nowhere is there biblical support for youth ministry. What are your thoughts? I want to serve in youth ministry, but after hearing this pastor's view, I don't know. Let me say, Anonymous, you want to serve in youth ministry. That's something God's put in your heart, and you do it. And don't let silly illogic like this particular pastor um, change your mind about what you know God's called you to do. Uh, I can tell you why churches have youth groups. Churches have youth groups because our youth needs fellowship. Our youth needs the teaching of the word. Our youth need to be able to minister one to another. And those are very, very important functions in the church. Now, of course, there's no biblical support for youth ministry uh, because they didn't have that problem in the ancient world in the time when our Bible was written. But things change and cultures change and we've got to meet the needs of the people. And the youth ministries are so critical to developing um, solid ministry and, and, and young men and young women who uh, have a strong foundation in the Word. So uh, that's why we have youth groups. Uh, as to robbing parents of the opportunity and responsibility to train up their child, uh, parents don't do that now. Parents don't do that now. 
Nobody's robbing parents of anything. We, I, I can't tell you how many times in speaking to the, the, the adults in our church, I'm telling them, especially the men, it's your responsibility to sit down with your families and teach them the Bible. Read it together. Talk about it together. It's your responsibility. And they don't take advantage of that now. It's almost like, well, you know, it's not that big a deal. At least I take him to church. That's not enough. And those parents are going to stand before the Lord and give account of their stewardship over their kids. So um, this is a pastor. And there, there are groups that believe that families need to sit together in church. Uh, that's absolute nonsense. They don't think that at home. Everybody splits the different rooms and different things that occupy their time. Um, but church is a place where a kid needs to be taught at his or her own level. In Nehemiah chapters 8 and 9, um, there's, this, there's this moment when Ezra the scribe steps to the pulpit, it's 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 one of the most majestic moments in our Old Testament. I I always get chill bumps and 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 get very emotional because as a as a Bible teacher, I see the reverence for the Word of God back then, and um and they 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 explained what the Word said, and then out in the crowd there were Levites answering questions, helping people to understand according to what their level of understanding was. And so principally anonymous, that's one of the best justifications for having youth ministry at all. So uh, if you want to serve in youth ministry, go for it. God has given you that gift and that desire. And to have a pastor make such an illogical argument um, makes no sense at all. Uh, One other thing. Uh, I personally view junior high ministry as one of the two most important ministries in this church. Um, With junior high schoolers, kids' bodies are changing, their minds are changing, uh, they're they're, they're developing um, the ability to think logically through things. Uh, and 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 we want to be sure that when those kids come out of grade school and go into junior high school, that they're given a solid foundation. Now, obviously, a lot of those kids don't care, uh, but we give them a solid foundation. And those are the kids that grow up into fruitful and productive high schoolers. In addition to that, Anonymous, uh, we're giving these kids an opportunity to say no to temptation, to say no to sin, to say no to the crazy world that we live in, in the exposure to all these immoral things. And um, a a child, a young teenager who doesn't have that foundation is simply not going to be able to say no. And we want to be able to give them that opportunity to thrive, not be swallowed by the worldliness all around them. And certainly with the impact of social media, uh, we want to give them uh, an alternative, and if if we can get to twelve and thirteen and fourteen year olds, um, give them a solid foundation. Um, they're going to be the high schoolers who will be able to stand for Jesus. Uh, my youth pastor, my junior high school pastor, knows that his job is to prepare the soon-to-be high schoolers to stand in a world where making adult choices. Uh, has adult consequences, and we want them to understand their relationship with Jesus Christ is the reason that they shouldn't um, be giving in to sin, that they shouldn't be influenced by this this media world that we live in. So, um, again, God bless you. Uh, the, the, the young men and women, when I say young men and women... Um, we have we have uh, married couples in their twenties and thirties uh, teaching our our junior high schoolers and high schoolers, and um, um, boy, the job they have is so important and so critical. By the way, um, many churches have multiple services, and I tell people let your kid go to a, a, a age appropriate Bible study, and then. Let him come into church with you in the following adult service if you want him to have or her to have uh, even a stronger foundation. And that's what happens here. 
That's what happens here. Let me say one other thing, and this isn't specifically about that, but, you know, churches with multiple services provide a wonderful opportunity for parents and their children to serve together. You know, I tell our the, the, the people here that are serious about their walk with the Lord, there's no way that they ought to come to any less than two services. We have three Sunday services here. And, and I tell them, you know, you should be at all three. You can go to one, you can be fed, you can serve at another one, and maybe you can be praying for the third service or being involved in another ministry. Because that's what we're supposed to be going to church to do, to, to use the gifts that God has given us. And we just don't see that. The pastor that you heard saying that youth ministry is robbing parents of the opportunity and responsibility to train up their child, he ought to be thinking of it as an opportunity for kids to serve with their families and then to serve individually. I can't tell you, and this isn't something parents force them to do, but I'm betting, my producer's going to give me a thumbs up or thumbs down on this, but I'm betting we have a hundred high schoolers and junior high schoolers who are here all three services every Sunday, and they're serving. I got a thumbs up, so I think that's, that's accurate. Thank you for the question, Anonymous. I appreciate it very, very much. Here is a question that was called in by Ron. Excuse me, I apologize in advance for my voice. Actually, it's not in advance because I've already been... Um, clearing my throat. I'm sorry. Uh, my, throat, my voice always tired on Mondays. Uh, this is from Ron. He says, It is said that Christ will return 2,000 years after Jesus' ascension. Where did the 2,000-year number come from regarding the return of Christ? Uh, it came from the devil. That's where the question comes from. Um, when people start making guesses at the timeline or, or, or giving dates that's simply the, the enemy. Um, nobody knows the hour or the time. So, Ron, just completely ignore when anybody says anything that foolish. So much damage has been done to the cause of Christ by people throughout the years who have um, set times and dates uh, I remember a book, 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Come in 1988. And, and um, um, in 1989, of course, when he didn't come, uh, that same author made a, a, a calculation adjustment and said, oh, I was wrong. I missed by one year. 89 Reasons Why He's Coming in 89. And, and that kind of foolishness. Um, uh, the Southwest Radio Bible Church, um, uh, the guy, his name escapes me at the moment, but, uh, I mean, he's he's given five or six dates for Jesus' return. Um, here's the truth. Nobody knows. And uh, so just ignore that nonsense. Um, I don't know why anybody would ever for a moment entertain uh, that, that somebody has some inside information when we've been told plainly by Jesus himself that no man knows the hour or the time. Now, we're not going to be here after the rapture of the church, but if we were, we could say, okay, he's coming in seven years. We know that. But but when he comes for his church and we, we enter into the last seven years, and by the way, the whole last seven years is called the day of the Lord. Um, but nobody knows, Ron, and um, so just just dismiss that as as utter foolishness and don't get caught up in that kind of thing. So um, where did it come from? It came from the enemy of our souls. Okay, we're inside three minutes. I got a couple of really good questions. I don't think I can do them in three minutes. Okay, I'm going to wait on that one. Let me see if I find a quick question I can do. Uh, here's one I can do. Oliver says, we're Old Testament believers filled with the Holy Spirit. Oliver, the answer is no. Um, with the exception of one, John the Baptist uh, was a special dispensation. Uh, and John the Baptist, although he appears in the New Testament, is an Old Testament figure. He's an Old Testament prophet. But Old Testament believers had the Holy Spirit come upon them. 
uh, Samson would do these great feats of strength when the Spirit came upon him. Gideon um, uh, would prophesy, and, and, and there were just so many others. Um, the Holy Spirit would come upon them in power to accomplish something specific, but they weren't filled with the Holy Spirit. And by filled, I mean the Holy Spirit didn't live in them. We know that because Jesus, when he was um, saying goodbye um, to after, but this is post-resurrection, he was with his disciples, and he uh, breathed on them and said, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. And then the Bible gives the own, our own explanation. It says, For he had not yet been given up until that time. So it was when Jesus breathed on his disciples, that was when they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And then, of course, we know that the Holy Spirit came upon them in power on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. So that was their first experience. There would be no experiential um, uh, relationship until that day uh, in Acts chapter 2. Good question, Oliver. Thank you very, very much. Uh, I'd love your calls in the last half of the program today. I've got two questions I really want to get to uh, that I think are significant or important. So uh, 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Or you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. This is the word to stand on for life. We will be back on the other side of the break. We'll see you in two minutes. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our program, 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Uh, you can call toll-free if you're outside the local area at 877-630-KSLR. Here is a question from Jerry uh, from our email inbox. Hi, Pastor Ron. I believe the Lord has called me into pastoral ministry, but my wife feels like I'm not ready. She always says, I will do great, but feels like the church will take time away from the family. She says, the family is the first ministry. What are your thoughts? Jerry, uh, and I'll explain this, so don't jump to any conclusions, but um, it's one of the most damaging things that people say without challenging. Family's first. Family's never first. Jesus is always first. What he's called you to do is always first. Now, having said that, um, how can two walk together unless they agree to do so is a, is a principle that's more important in ministry than anything I can communicate. So um, it sounds like she's the one who's not ready. So here's what you do. And I'm, I'm, this is from personal experience. Uh, I have the I, God has given me the best partner in life, uh, in marriage, in ministry, in the world. And when I knew that we were called to come to San Antonio, um, I knew that if God was really speaking to me, then he would be uh, big enough and powerful enough to speak to her. And my job then as the leader of the home, Jerry, was to just encourage her to go before the Lord. Uh, She did not want to come to San Antonio, and who could blame her? We'd never been here, and we didn't know anybody. Our children were there. Um, she prayed for me for 13 years to get saved. I, I put her through a living hell. And in fact, um, the, the one thing I needed, to, I, I really knew, is that we needed to be together in this or it didn't have any chance to succeed. So what I told Paula to do was pray about this. Paula, I'm not going to talk to you about it again. I won't bring it up. You know what I believe God's called us to do. Now, what I want you to do, because you love the Lord, I want you to pray about this. Now, I was a workaholic. This is no exaggeration. Paula will tell you it's it's slightly under-exaggerated. Uh, I worked in excess of 100 hours a week. 
And Paula thought, oh, great, now that he's a Christian, he's just going to be an out, a workaholic for, for Jesus, and I'm still going to get left behind. Uh, God always makes time for a pastor and his family. He always makes time. But the husband and the wife have got to partner together based on the word of God. So here's what you should do, Jerry. You should sit down and say, you know that this is what I'm called to do. And for you to say that I would be great at it is a little disingenuous because I won't be great if I'm not doing the work. If I'm not being obedient now, I won't be obedient later. But then take this step. Say, you know what? I'm not going to do anything until you and I are in agreement on this. But I want you to promise me that you're going to really pray about this and you're going to really seek the Lord. And then you can counsel her. Don't let fear, don't let what your preconceived ideas about time away from family. Just ask God, is this what my husband is called to do? And if so, how can I support it? That's really, really important. And then I promise you that um, if she if she doesn't want to pray because she doesn't want to hear the answer, God's going to make her life miserable. Uh, as she prays, the Lord will speak to her heart, and then the two of you will be able to start on a particular day and say, okay, from this day forward, we know which direction we're going. But I want to repeat this, Jerry, because the idea that uh, family comes first is nonsense. Jesus comes first, and when you're walking with Jesus, when the two of you are following after your calling in life, in fact, family never comes first if you're avoiding what the Lord has called you to do. So if you're walking together, he will always make time for the family. So there's no competition there. And, and you know, I can honestly say, and, you know, I'm getting old, and it's possible that I've forgotten some things, but I don't think Paul has ever complained to me about being in the ministry or feeling like she's second or feeling like um, uh, she's being ignored. Um, we do it together. And that's the best possible thing. Now, let me also say this, Jerry. I've got a whole bunch of pastors with a bunch of kids. And I don't want the pastors missing their kids' ball games. I don't want the pastors missing uh, special events. Um, um God always provides time for those kinds of things. And maybe the pastor who is a father of multiple children um, and certainly a husband to, to one wife, um, you know, they, they have to reprioritize, reprioritize their schedules. But God will always help with that. And if you're being obedient to the calling that God has called you to, then you won't ignore your family uh, and they don't have to worry about that. Uh, and, and Jerry, it, it probably would be um, a good thing for you and your wife to sit together with the pastor and his wife, wherever it is you go to church, sit down with the pastor and his wife who have children and just say, okay, help us to, to, to navigate in our mind what it's going to look like and how I can pay attention to my family and the calling that God has given me. Because the one thing, again, I want to repeat is that that there's no quality family time if you're not walking in the will of God. So just do it. Um, you've got to be obedient. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. He's given you this desire and he's giving you the pastoral gifts to do it. Be sure that your wife feels pastored. You know, people don't like when I say this, but but... I'm always Paula's husband, but I'm also always her pastor. And the idea that, well, I'm a husband first. No, no, no. I'm her husband, but I'm also her pastor. And a pastor's job and a husband's job is to make sure that together you're following the call of God in your life. So this is something you got to do. And if you're waiting to get ready, it's like the, the, the man who says, well, you know, when I make more, I'll be a very generous giver. No, you won't. Be faithful now, and you and your wife together can pursue a wonderful life, Jerry, that God has for you. I can tell you without hesitation that there's simply no better life for me and Paula 
than doing what we're privileged to be able to do. Do we get busy? Of course we get busy. Uh, is there a lot of heartbreak and a lot of pain? Yes. Are there emergencies that come up that cause everything to stop? The answer to that is also yes. But that's a small price to pay for the rich, abundant, fruitful life that God lets us live. Being a pastor, it frustrates me when pastors complain about the people that God has entrusted to them. There's no better job in the world than to be able to say, Jesus, you're my boss, and I'm doing this for you, and I thank you because of this calling. So, Jerry, I hope that helps, and uh, I'll actually put you on my prayer list because uh, that's really important. That's You can't wait to be obedient. Here is a question from James. And he says, Pastor Ron, do you ever think that you should have gone somewhere else other than San Antonio? I ask because I really struggle with what I think God is saying to me. James, if you think God is saying something to you in terms of direction, then you got to go. you got to go. I mean, don't struggle with it. Just make the decision. God, this is what you want. That's what I'm going to do. We are men, James, under orders. And I think sometimes we think this this ability to struggle is the ability to choose. We don't get a choice. He's the Lord. We're not. He calls. We go. Jerry, Mike, or James, I'm sorry, my calling uh, to San Antonio was so profound that I, I went right back. I was, I was in Bible college. I was in the mountains. And I went right back and wrote it in my Bible. I dated it and signed it. It was March 4th, 1994. And my note in the Bible says, uh, Today the Lord spoke to my heart and asked me to start praying for the people of San Antonio, Texas. Now remember, I'd never been here and I didn't know anybody here. But I didn't have to for God to send me there. It's that simple. He gives the orders, and I follow him. But it was so profound that it was that moment when I said yes. And so you never really, really second-guess those steps of obedience. Now, I had a lot of temptation not to come. I had people with well-meaning hearts. I had people who... um, said, well, well, you shouldn't go. You can stay here. I'll help you start a church here. I knew I was called to be a pastor. God never even told me that I was going to pastor a church here. He just said, I'll be waiting for you in San Antonio. And what that meant to me, James, was that I had no other choice. If I wanted to be with Jesus, this is where I had to come. And literally, as soon as we graduated from Bible college, uh, Paul and I got in a truck and we headed east on Interstate 10, and uh, we came to San Antonio, Texas. So it's really important. We don't get a choice. So stop the struggling. Just make the decision that I'm going to obey, Lord. I'm going to obey. And if you'll do that and resist the, the lies from the enemy, you'll resist the doubts of other people around you, and believe me, the enemy will put even well-meaning people in a position to cause you doubt. You know, one one particular case for me and Paula, I think everybody here uh, on the program knows that Paula is black and I'm white. And uh, um, uh, I had a friend of mine say to me, you're really going to go to San Antonio? I said, yeah. God said to go. Well, what are you going to do? I don't know. I'm going to go there and then he'll give me instructions. And then he looked at me and he said this, you know San Antonio is in the south, don't you? And I said, so? And then he looked at me and said, Paul is black. And he was looking at me like I was doing something that was dangerous for her. And all I could look at him and say was, well, well, I think God knows she's black. And he told us to go to San Antonio. So you just have to make the decision that we are men under orders and we don't get to question what we do. So if you think God is telling you to do something, you step out in faith. You begin now the preparation to make that first step. But you got to do it. I think of Abraham, James, uh, Abram then, when God said to him, 
Um, on the very first day, we heard, we heard God call his name. And he said, leave your family, leave the place you live, and go to a place I will show you. Now, he had to go explain that to his wife. Where are we going? Well, I don't know. He didn't tell me. Well, who? God. God spoke to you? They knew God didn't speak. They were an idol-worshipping family. But Abraham knew. And so, James, if you know, stop struggling. Just let God have his way in your life. You will never, ever regret it. Thank you, James. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Uh, Raymond says, Pastor, I get confused when sharing the gospel because it's so complex I can't do it in a few minutes. How can I make it easier? Raymond, open your Bible. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, verses 1 through 3. That's the entire gospel in three minutes, in three verses, just, just, uh, just a half a minute of reading. That's the whole gospel. It's not confusing. It's not complex. It's simple. You're a sinner. Jesus came to die for sinners. He lived a perfect life because we couldn't, and he gives us his righteousness or his perfection when we give him our sin. And because he died and he didn't stay dead, we know that this is true. So that's the gospel. And it's really easy to do that. Don't outsmart yourself. Don't try to persuade or convince. Just declare. Don't even defend the gospel. Just declare it. Jesus Christ died for the sins of the world. You're a sinner. He wants to forgive you. And all you have to do is ask and believe that he is the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, he's now going to be in charge. Raymond, that's as easy as it can possibly get. So don't... Usually confusion comes when we think we have to do more. Just that's the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 3. Very simple. Here's an anonymous question. He says, or she says, I want to share Jesus with friends, but I know they will make fun of me, and I will be embarrassed. Thoughts, please. Uh, Anonymous, get over yourself. I can't be any more direct than that. Get over yourself. Who cares if you're embarrassed? Um, I did a lot of things as an unbeliever that that were truly embarrassing, things that I was ashamed of. Um, I'm willing to be made a fool of for Jesus Christ all the more. So, so just don't worry. Uh, if they don't want to be your friends anymore, that's okay. Jesus will be thrilled with you. Um, don't worry about what people think. You know your heart. God knows your heart. And you just share. If their hearts are hard, if they embarrass you or laugh at you, you just tell them, I'm sorry I tell you about Jesus because I don't even want to think about heaven without you. But that's the risk you're taking. If you ever really want to know the truth, if you have questions you want real answers to, then I'm your guy or I'm your woman. Come and ask me. So, Anonymous, that's as straightforward as I can make it. Here is a question from Dale. He says, Does God ever choose not to heal? Dale all the time, and in fact, God chooses not to heal people way more often than he chooses to heal people. It's that simple. Sickness, illness, um, disease, all these things are are part and parcel of living in a fallen world. And most people die without being touched by God for healing. The one disease God heals everybody of, if if we come to him on his terms, if we ask, is the, the disease, the fatal disease of sin. But physical illness, of course God chooses not to heal. Now, Dale, I don't know how long you've been listening to this program, but I'm visually impaired and my eyes are getting worse uh, at, at breakneck speed. Um, I pray constantly for my eyes to be healed. Uh, I would dare say there are thousands of people praying for me 
in this world for my eyes to be to be healed. I haven't been able to drive in 26 plus years. Uh, I can no longer see my notes. Um, um, I, I mean, I, it's a real handicap. Um, but you know what? God still enabled me to do what I was born to do. He's chosen not to heal. In fact, he's spoken in my heart fairly clearly. It doesn't mean I don't ask to heal, but he said my grace is sufficient for you, specifically when I prayed about this issue. Uh, I, I've got some wonderful people in my church right now who are dealing with cancer, people that I love so deeply and my heart hurts for them. Um, um, somebody gets healed, most of the others do not. So if you, the genesis of this question, Dale, is the church you're in and they're claiming that it's always the will of God to heal, you're in a really, really bad church. You need to get out of there and you need to get out of there now uh, because most of the time God chooses not to heal physically. Now, he still intervenes. There are miraculous healings. We have been blessed in our church body by, by uh, a few, quite a few of them. Um, but most of the people, they don't get healed. God's grace is sufficient for them as well. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions or toll free six three zero eight seven seven six three zero KSLR. Here's an anonymous question. Uh, he says, I don't mean this to be funny. Preachers are always saying God is trying to change us. Is that like marrying someone and trying to change them? Why can't God just accept us as we are? This is such a great question. God accepts everybody the way they are. But he loves us so much that he won't let us stay the way we are. Now, I'll just be very personal on this. I was the biggest jerk in the world. And I came to God uh, because I've ruined my life and the lives of others. Um, I was desperate for something, for anything. I needed to be changed. And only God has the power to change. But you know what? His arms were open that day in 1991 when I gave my heart to him. And he accepted me just as I am. But he, when he picked me up off that public street in Upland, California, that very moment we began walking together in a completely new direction, a completely new life. So here's your problem, Anonymous. And I don't mean this to be ugly, but your problem is you think you're okay and you're not. You need to change. You're doing things that offend the holy God. No doubt you're doing things that are causing a lot of pain in your life and in the lives of those who care for you. Your life needs to change. And Jesus says, if you walk with me every day, this, the theological term is a sanctification, you'll be more like me every single day. And anonymous, the closer you get to Jesus, the better he gets, the, the closer you get to him, the more you're going to like who you are the more you're going to realize that people now like who you are. We've got a man in the church, Ray Ray, uh, who um, he hears things and kind of holds on. I did a Bible study one time. I said, I'm Ron the jerk. He's never let that go. And Ray Ray says when people, you know who this is? This is Ron the jerk. I mean, he introduces me that way to people that, that I'm meeting for the very first time. This is Ron the jerk. Um, but you know what? I'm not that Ron anymore. I didn't want to stay that Ron. And so God, because he loves us, wants us to be in a place where we can be pleasing to him. So God will change you if you allow him to do it. In fact, he'll do it very quickly if you allow him to do it. But if you resist him and it takes a long time, then there's going to be even more pain in your life because God loves you so much, Anonymous, that he just can't bear to see you be who you are. And he wants you to be more like Jesus. 
It is nothing like marrying someone and trying to remake them in your image because your image isn't all that good. This is like you saying to Jesus, okay, I was created in your image. I was created for your glory and for your pleasure. Let's start walking that path right now today. Hope that makes sense to you. One more question. I've got two minutes. Drew says, Pastor Ron, how can I feel the presence of God like other Christians do? Um, Drew, I always, I, I, I wish we could talk face to face here because I'd say, well, what do you mean feel the presence of God? It doesn't take any faith to feel the presence of God. If you mean do you get goosebumps or is there some supernaturally experience, uh, that happens sometimes, not very often. Most of the time, when you hear Christians say, oh, I feel the presence of God, and I've got people that show me their goosebumps and, and all these things, say, that's not the presence of God. This is a good moment. God's speaking to your heart. But you see, God says we should know that his presence is with us by faith, whether we feel him or not. Those of us who have to have an experience We're not walking by faith at all. We're walking by sight or we're walking by feeling. So you want to feel the presence of God? You just be with Jesus. You get up every day and make it your goal to stand with him, to walk with him, to talk to him and listen for his voice. And I promise you at some point, the goosebumps or whatever it is you're looking for, um, they will become absolutely unnecessary. And Drew, that's just called maturing in our faith. That's all. It's just maturing in our faith. Thanks for the question. Hey, I appreciate the questions today. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Remember tonight, we've got our men's, women's, and youth Bible studies at 7 o'clock. Ladies, you can watch Paula at calvarysa.com at 7 o'clock. May the Lord bless you and keep you. I'll be back, Lord willing, tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.